You're listening to the Ultimate Sports Podcast, your one-stop shop for all your sporting news and discussion. Welcome back to the podcast, and we are back with a brand new sports news episode. It's been a couple of weeks since we've done one of these, a bit of a hiatus and a break from us, but we're back and we're going to kick off with some tennis to start with before discussing the football and the, the crowds, or rather the lack of analyse the boxing, particularly with the Dillian White fight and the Boyle fighting. Toby will bring you an update from what's been happening in the darts and more specifically Van Gerwen's fall. And then we'll dive in a little bit of snook at Tour de France NFL. And as always, it's not just me and Toby here. We've got a new guest host in fellow journalist and podcast host, Paul Draguna. How are you doing, boys, today? Yeah, well, well, thank thanks. you. I would say tennis first. Paul, you love your tennis. And I think there's only one place we could really start with the US Open, and that's of Novak Djokovic and what has been a horrendous year. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, really. It has been an awful year for someone who's, he seems so obsessed with being liked by tennis fans who all seem to idolise Federer and Nadal for good reason. He's done absolutely nothing to gain any fans this year. I mean, what happened yesterday was just the icing on the cake. It's pretty embarrassing for him, isn't it? All in truth. And obviously we had this stuff with the tour in, in Eastern Europe that all went badly wrong as well. And now this incident in the US Open. And I think for the first time in a number of years, none of the big three, as they're referred to, are going to be in the quarterfinals of a Grand Slam tournament. Yeah, now, of course, we're on about the incident where Novak Djokovic struck the ball at one of the officials, sat at the side of the court and resulted in being defaulted. Now, this tournament hasn't been without its controversy as a whole. Now, I just want to take you back a bit, Paul. Do you think it should have even gone ahead in the first place? Personally, no, because tennis is such an international sport and it's not exactly like team sports where you can isolate a group it's players are coming from all over the world if they're representing a country they may even live in a different country so I think the players who decline to play are sort of in the right mindset I mean arguments for it being played yeah regular testing but you had people like Benoit Paire who just pulled out the day before because he tested positive it's just like if he was already there if he'd have played a game the whole thing could have just been null and void basically so yeah I think it was a the wrong decision to be played. I agree. And we heard from Mike Gillett, our friend who's a tennis correspondent, a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? And he talked about how he didn't think it should go ahead either. And I think that was the prevailing view among a lot of the tennis media was that it perhaps wasn't the best idea for it to go ahead. But ultimately, it did go ahead. I think probably money talked in that instance, perhaps. And I'm not entirely sure if the organisers will be totally happy with the way things have transpired with all these players dropping out and now obviously what we've seen with Djokovic as well but to look on the bright side we are going to have a new Grand Slam winner and that's got to be a good thing you know somebody a lesser player if you will or a lesser known player is going to have their moment of glory their Grand Slam win and that can only be a good thing because eventually we've got to welcome in the next generation after Djokovic, Federer and Nadal retire so I think that's perhaps a, a silver lining but I just feel so sorry for that line guard and hope that she's okay I think they said that she's her identity's being kept secret for her own privacy but she certainly didn't look very impressed with Djokovic and for good reason I um, saw online people saying that she'd made a meal of it and I was just thinking he's hitting the ball out of anger and frustration like it may not look hard to you but if you got hit by anything from a professional athlete soft or not I mean you're gonna hit the deck and I saw people saying she made a meal of it and I was just thinking I'd like to see you take a tennis ball in the throat from one of the best players in the world 
Yeah, I, I agree. And I think sometimes you do get these cults of personality around sports people and their, their fans will just defend them to the hilt, whatever happens. And I think this was one of those cases where it really was indefensible. And we did see quite an extended discussion on the court. It wasn't a very swift decision from the umpire to disqualify Djokovic. And he was to argue for quite some time about it. But ultimately, I think the umpire did come to the right decision. Maybe yeah. it was a lesser player as well, I feel like they wouldn't have taken that long. I saw um, Nick Kyrgios tweet something about like how how much of a fine he'd get if it was him. And then Tommy Paul, an American player, replied saying, we'd be bailing you out of jail right now. And I think that is a, a fair point to make. He's sort of, the reason it took so long is because he's Novak Djokovic. If it was a lesser player, they would have been like kicked out, disqualified straight away. Yes, and it reminds me as well of the incident, I can't remember the guy's name, but there was a Canadian player in the Davis Cup three or four years ago who smashed a ball in anger and he actually Shapilev Shapilev was it yeah I think I think think you might be right there and yeah smashed a ball and and that actually hit the umpire in the chair in the eye and he qualified for that and arguably I think that was probably even more crushing for him than this one will be for Djokovic because he lost his country the Davis Cup didn't he or his country was knocked out the Davis Cup as a result so he hadn't just let himself down in that instance he'd let his entire country down but Obviously, that's not to diminish the seriousness of what's happened with Novak Djokovic. And I think that it's probably going to be one that will be talked about in the tennis media for quite some time as well. Should he get a a further extended ban? Will this be the end of it? I'm not sure. Yeah, absolutely. And we're not talking about someone that's just happened to hit a ball away. He's really properly whacked it in frustration. As you say, there are people coming out and saying that it wouldn't have hurt. And they are ridiculous. And they're not living on this planet because that would kill having a ball hit with you by anyone. But let alone a professional tennis player with these great speeds they could get on it. And it's been anger. There's going to be that little bit of extra speed and frustration in it. I mean, Djokovic come out afterwards and he did refuse to meet the press after this. That's another fine there as well. Yeah, and he's now since said today that he's sad and empty, but I think there was little sympathy really towards the woman. It was more towards him being knocked out. And we mentioned just then that there is going to be a new winner. Paul, who would your pick be? I think uh, Medvedev I'm going to go with. I think he had a good year last year. I mean, there's a lot of guys that threaten to be the next big thing. And I think his stint at being the next number one kind of was the most realistic where I thought, yeah, you know what, I could see him going on to dominate. But then obviously you've got team as well, who's I think one of the only other guys who's been in a Grand Slam final. So I think between those two, I'm unconvinced on Zverev. I think he's a bit hit and miss. And I would quite like to see Felix Auger-Aliassime do well, but I don't think he'll win it. I think it's too much for him right now was just chatting with Mike earlier today about this and uh, he's backing Medvedev as well. And just looking through the odds, Medvedev is the favourite and I can certainly see him going all the way. For a sort of player who's flown under the radar for a long time, that would be great to see him have his moment in the sun. But I think Alex Zverev, Paul's not so sure. I'm also a bit ambivalent on him. Yeah. I think he clearly got the talent to win a Grand Slam. He has won significant tournaments in the past, hasn't he? Did he win the ATP? Yeah, I think uh, he did. Yeah, a couple of yeah. years ago. So he's obviously got the talent to do it and he's still young. So I'd love to see him win it. Dominic Team, 
there are issues with him in terms of just getting over the line and it's whether he can he has the stamina and the fortitude perhaps psychologically to get over the line and I sincerely hope he does there's been a couple of instances now where he's got to the final and he just hasn't been able to get over the line so I really hope that this year is his year and then yeah he talks about Aliasim and I'd quite like to see him do it I think David Goffman he's playing team today today which, that could be yeah. interesting and I think David Goffman is quite like to he's, see he's out now he lost to funny enough Dennis Shapovalov it could be him. I mean, there'd be a certain yeah. irony about that, wouldn't there? About him having been disqualified previously for a similar offence to Djokovic. He would then profit from some, it happening to somebody else. Yeah, definitely wide open. And I think this is probably the most exciting Grand Slam we've seen in many a year as a result. Yeah, it makes it more entertaining without a doubt. I mean, Paul's pick is a 2-1 to one team and Trera both 4-1. to one. So they're the, obviously the clear favourites there. One player I thought could have done a bit better was considering circumstance in this tournament. And we t- spoke about him after the ATP last year at Sitsapass. And he's, he obviously went out in the third round. But this would have been a great opportunity for him to nail on that first Grand Slam and build on from the ATP. Yeah, like you said, I thought he was going to do well. But he's, he's one of those players where I think he might always be a nearly man. Like, he'll threaten to do well and just won't. Yeah, I thought this tournament, considering that Federer and Nadal weren't playing, and now that Djokovic has been disqualified, he's going to be kicking himself because this is the chance for any of those guys, like, floating around the top three. This is their chance to win it, and he'll be more frustrated than he was before. Yeah, he's still young, isn't he? So you could say maybe it's not quite his time just yet, but I definitely agree with Paul that it was a major opportunity for him and one that he's let slide. So hopefully he'll come back stronger in the French Open I think there's a few players that are going to have some regrets about their performances in this one yeah and then just on the Brits as well of course this is Andy Murray he's coming back in this and he faltered at the, the second round along with Dan Evans and Carl Edmonds did in the first round to Djokovic it's not been a great tournament for the Brits has it well, worth just mentioning Andy Murray and saying that in the first round pretty ridiculous five set victory in the first round came back from four sets down to beat Yoshihito Nishikora who was the world number 49 so was actually ranked higher than Murray so yes he he got knocked out in the next round and that was unfortunate but bear in mind obviously you've only got to go back 20 months to when he was getting very upset there was lots of talk of retirement after he went out in the Australian Open first round and obviously he's come back you know with his metal hit and he's still you know, fighting and still winning matches in Grand Slam tournaments. And I think that's great to see. He's clearly not doing it because for financial reasons, he's doing it because he loves the game. And I think that's nice to see. But he beat Zverev in the Cincinnati Masters as well, just a few days before the US Open. So he's still got the talent. It's just, fortunately, his body may not help him. He's still got the passion as well, hasn't he? You know, yeah. There have been other players who, you know, they were two sets down. And he's, as I say, he's had his injury problems. He's not getting any younger either. And there may have been players who would have just given up a bit after that. But he certainly didn't. He said, I had to put the afterburners on when uh, I got two sets down. Those are his words. And he ended up coming back and winning it. So fair play to Andy Murray. Full credit to him. Yeah, I mean, Cincinnati Masters, you mentioned there, ironically, was won by Djokovic. So he was definitely the favourite to win this. It really is open now. Well, who would your pick actually be if you used to pick one, Toby? I think probably Medvedev is justifiably the favourite and I'd like to see him win it. But I'd like to see Zverev win it the most. I'd, I'd really love to see him get his first Grand Slam. Yeah, I'd probably agree with you, Zverev. Now, we mentioned plenty about the male athletes there. I just want to touch on female athletes now. Now, it's probably no surprise here, so I'm going to react to it pretty much a given. But the top paid female athletes have all been tennis players in the last year. Is that expected? I think it's... um. 
without being disrespectful, I think it's a sport where if you're a fan of the sport, you'd watch men's and women's. Whereas, say, if you're a football fan, you may only watch men's football and not have a clue about any female players. But as tennis fans, I think because they're on at the same time, like it's the same tournament, you kind of just get involved in the sport and you watch both male and female. And this standard is not noticeably different, to be honest. I mean, yeah, the, they don't play as many sets, but female tennis players are some of the best athletes in the world, full stop, male or female. Yeah, I agree with Paul there. I think tennis has been one of the great success stories in terms of women's sport. And full credit to the um, tennis bodies for how they've, they've managed to promote the game. And it really does feel like there's almost parity in terms of the publicity and the recognition of the women's game and the men's game. And also, I think you've got to remember the big personalities of the women's game have, have helped that. Obviously, Serena Williams at the moment is, is mm. the main one. And I think that a lot of the players in the women's game at the moment are drinking from the well that she has dug in terms of the publicity. But that's good to see. And also, I think in the men's game, by and large, have been very supportive of the women's yeah. game as well. And Andy Murray's been pretty crucial in that, in promoting the women's game. Obviously, Judy Murray, I think, is involved in the women's game as well so I think that's part of it whereas in football for instance and women's football which is talked about a lot at the moment you don't really see male players referencing the women's game much at all so there definitely seems to be that disconnect between the two that you just don't have in tennis. I reckon that's though part in truth because difference in quality in tennis is is not too much between the men and the women's. I think Serena Williams or someone like her could beat a ranked male player whereas I don't think a top league women's player would be able to play in the Premier League and that's no disrespect I just think that the ability difference is far less in tennis than in other sports like you said. Yeah I'm, I'm not entirely sure why it is I think there is perhaps an ability argument but then again if you watch something on its own merits I don't think it's necessarily the case that the difference in quality perhaps is an issue for instance, the Women's World Cup was very popular and a lot of people watched those games, particularly the ones involving England and England versus USA in that semi-final. So I think if you, if you sit and watch the games on their own merits rather than continually thinking, well, a male player wouldn't have done that or a male player would have scored that or saved that, then it can be worthwhile and, and you can sort of forget about that and enjoy that. And I think a lot of people do, but I suppose there is always going to be that issue, perhaps, that people are going to compare it in a negative way towards the men's game. And that's unfortunate. Yeah, we'll talk about tennis there and they've had the lack of crowds. We're just going to move into talking about crowds more specifically in football now. Now, I'm going to put to you, you can go to fun fairs, you could go to the snooker final without a mask on inside, you could go to packed beaches, you could go down to the pubs and meet up with your friends, but you can't go to a football match yet and sit outside. I know we've had a couple of the trial games, but it's just a shadow of what it should be. I don't think it makes sense, to be honest. Like you said, you can do pretty much anything but go to a football match and I think teams, certainly at a lower level, rely a lot on match day income. And without that, it's putting their future in jeopardy. And I think there's even more pertinent the non-playing staff are being affected ma- massively because the money they do generate from, say, TV rights or highlights are going to the playing staff. So I think it's ridiculous. I mean, you could easily have half full stadiums, just space a few seats between each person or whatever. I think it's it's ridiculous. I'm going to take a slightly different view on this one. I agree with the point you made, Sam, about how it is ridiculous that there's certain things 
that like you listed that you can't do and certain things like going to football that you can't do and certain things that you listed that you can do but my argument would be that some of the things you listed I don't think should be allowed in the current climate I don't think people should be allowed to cram onto beaches or cram into fun fairs because I don't think that's safe at the moment and I'd argue with football we do need to be cautious even though there are financial implications and I just think we need to be careful not to rush everybody in it's not necessarily the actual act of sitting there watching the match that's the problem I think it's more the people sort of bottlenecking at half time when they go for their pies or to the toilet or whatever or when they're trying to get in the turnstiles that sort of thing is more difficult to police when people have had a few drinks sometimes they're liable to gather together in large groups or even dare I say it get into confrontations with other fans and that's a big issue especially for the police so I think there are numerous issues and obviously as well the pubs are a hell of a lot busier during people are all around in football and after the game before the game and that sort of thing so people crowding into pubs I think could be an issue as well so I think the government are right to be cautious on this one but I agree with you Sam there is hypocrisy there and they need to do something about that yeah personally I've been pretty outraged about it I mean it's good that we've got the non-league sides are finally allowed to have crowds in and but it's still the the league one the league two the national league they're still suffering and even the championship with the smaller clubs such as Wickham Luton they're not going to do too well. You were saying, Toby, like the Carabao Cup. Yes. They're losing money from going through to further rounds. And it's, it's just ridiculous the amount of money that's being lost out. And I think the main comparison I like to make is with the snooker, the fact that you could go inside, you can socially distance in there. There's plenty of the audience at the final of the championship. Coffin, none of them wear a mask. It was all fine. But we couldn't, at the time, go and watch the football outside when it was sunny and... There's plenty of studies to show that coronavirus is destroyed or killed off in sunlight. So it just makes the whole thing even more ridiculous. I mean, we've had the matches. We had Brighton and Chelsea in pre-season where I think they've had 2,500 out of 30k go. But there's no reason that couldn't be 15k out of 30. I mean, for me at Reading, we're never going to get a full crowd. 26,000, probably get 13,000. You can have those in, social distance. They don't even need to be on an individual seat because there's no doubt going to be little bubbles like when you go into a pub solves it and it's just stupid and I really feel sorry for all the football clubs around the country and I'm surprised more haven't gone under yet. Just on that point some about the um, Carabao Cup that you mentioned it was the report out that said that the longer teams stay in the tournament the more money they're going to lose because the prize money has been been cut so any incentive to actually do well in the tournament has been completely removed because there may be some clubs who are in a position where they're going to have to say to players well if you win this game lads then we're not going to be able to pay you for the next one or something like that and I mean how can that be an acceptable position to take? No it's all a farce absolute farce and like it's, they say it's going to be based on the toilets and the concourse area for how many people they are going to let in but that was a report that came out a few weeks ago we've not heard too much more since I know Cambridge it's either the weekend just gone or the weekend just coming up they're having uh, 2,000 fans allowed in which is out of 8,000 which is slowly getting there as a bit of a trial but there's been a big calls actually Chelsea and Watford have been calling for beer to be allowed to be served in the stands I'm not sure if that's going to be like an app and they order it to your seat or you carry it to your seat obviously yeah I was just going to say that's not been the case for ages no, so no why, but this is what I mean happy? they want that changed so they want to I read it's they make more money and two so it's easier to social distance now that's what I was just going to ask about your thoughts on that I think it makes sense doesn't it really to like cut down it's like weather spoons do it which is to cut down on queues and congestions and stuff so yeah I think why not 
I mean, it's, it seems quite American to me, those sort of like the popcorn vendors roaming through the stands or stuff like that. But if it means fans can come back in, then yeah, I'm all for it. We have seen with some of the pubs reopening that when people get inebriated, they lose their desire to social distance, shall we say. So I think they have to be careful with that one. And I do worry, and this isn't just about the alcohol issue, but a couple of other things, some of the alterations to the League Cup, for instance, that the COVID situation is being used to implement changes that necessarily in ordinary times wouldn't be stood for. And that when this subsides, if it does subside, we're going to be left with this stuff and people are going to say oh well let's just carry on selling people alcohol you know in in matches and let's carry on with a a one-legged semi-final in the league cup and that sort of thing and and we will never go back to how it used to be yeah i mean perhaps unsurprisingly i'm all for it the drinking in the stands was of course outlawed probably the 80s now wasn't it with the hooliganism but my kind of argument for this has been for Reading to take it back once again is we had london irish play there at the medeski and you could go watch the London Irish on the Sunday and you'd be allowed to go drink in the stands. But the day before when you was watching Reading, you couldn't. And it just seems a bit of a contradictory law. I mean, it would be good to come back, but I agree with you, Toby, that you're probably going to dive into some problems there with people drinking a bit too much. And it certainly probably would harm my bank account a little bit. Can they not go, you know, 45 minutes either side of half time without having a drink? I don't know. Maybe it's just me. No, I think it's to replace that going down at half-time. That's the main idea behind it, so you don't have to Oh, right, down. so you don't, yeah. I suppose so, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. That might be quite a confusing thing to try and bring it to people's seats. I suppose they've made it work in America and that sort of thing, but I'm not sure. That might require quite a lot of logistical difficulties, but if they can make it work, we'll have to see. Yeah, I think that would definitely be very hard to do. Like, I agree with you there. Just to say, I prefer a hot drink at football, to be honest. Most of the time it's freezing cold. You don't, you don't want a pint because it's about to ice over. What's your go-to hot drink? Well, it all depends, to be honest. I'm not a Bovril man. Oh, I love e- a Bovril. Yeah, either, I like Bovril. Yeah, either a cup of tea or hot chocolate sometimes, but no, definitely not Bovril. <laughs> And anyway, from fighting to bring back fans and even alcohol to the stadiums to actual fighting now with the boxing, we had Dillian White, his upset at the hands of Povetkin. Now, you hit the nail on the head with your prediction, Toby, and you called this. Yes, to my surprise, to be honest, because it was a bit of a hopeful prediction. But Povetkin knocking out Dillian White in what a lot of people saw as a shock, but I did say he might be 40, but Povetkin retained his ability and he did give AJ a fight in the opening few rounds of his bout with, I thought to myself that if Povetkin could get on the front foot early and land some punches and, and possibly knock out White in the early rounds, then obviously he, he would emerge the winner. It was all going to be about how White dealt with those early rounds. And as it turned out, Povetkin did emerge triumph. He becomes the the mandatory fighter for the WBC now. But obviously there is now a rematch, which obviously must have been agreed beforehand, despite no one actually speaking of it, which they hope will take place in around December, November time, which does seem to come around pretty quick. Yeah, obviously not didn't go to plan for Dillian White. And you do feel for him because he's always just been on the fringes of greatness, hasn't he? And if he'd have been around at a different time, then you don't know. He he might have been the AJ of his era. But as it turns out, it's just a few times now he's walked into one too good. Yeah, it was a fifth round knockout. And as we say, it was, it was quite an interesting fight. I was shocked by it to see him lying on the canvas there. Because only the round before, White got a few decent hits to the face. and. 
Povetkin's corner looked like they were going to throw the towel in. He was stumbling around a bit. He just about clung on to get through that round and then just had this one hit in the next round, which dropped white, put him totally out of the match and shocked everyone. There was silence in matchroom HQ. And you speak about white being that potential next big fighter and never living up to expectation. One fighter that does look like he'll live up to expectation, I know one that you tend to admire, Daniel Dubois. He had a, a low-key fight for him against uh, Schneider, couple of weeks ago now in which case he won in the second round with a series of body shots setting up really in the warm-up for his fight against Joe Joyce. I was glad to see him get the result and a pretty easy result at that and hopefully it won't be too long before he's challenging for you know one of the big boys an AJ perhaps or maybe could even be Dillian White. Yeah, I mean, I think he would beat White. If, and as I say, that fight there was, was four knockdowns in 200 seconds there, taking the Bois record to 15 wins, 14 by knockout. Only one fighter has taken him all the way to points. But he's definitely going to be the next star of boxing once we've got past this AJ Fury Wilder stage because they're all of a similar age and they're aging out of boxing. And I don't really see anyone that's up and coming that can really dispute him at the moment. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Sam. I've identified him a couple of years ago. I think we were talking about him and that he was going to be the next big thing in boxing. And I'm very pleased to see his career progress the way it has. Moving on now to the darts, Toby, which you're going to give us a little update following the fall of Michael Van Gerwen, shall we say. Yeah, and quite a dramatic fall from Grace as well. In the Premier League of darts, which is the league phase, has just concluded this week. Michael Van Gerwen had won the league phase the last seven years, this competition, but he could only finish sixth this year out of nine. And this year was won by Glenn Durrant, the lesser-known player who, who only turned professional two years ago and has taken the PDC by storm, it's fair to say. He's proven virtually invincible Premier League this season. I think only two defeats all season, which is pretty incredible in the Premier League of Darts. And he becomes only the third ever winner of the Premier League in its 15-year history. Phil Taylor and Michael Van Gerwen were the only two people to have ever won the league phase. And he picks up, uh, I think it's £25,000 bonus for that. The top four will now go on to finals night, where they'll play a mini-tournament to decide who lifts the Premier League trophy. But it's already a moral victory for Durant to have won the league phase, having only just joined the PDC in the last couple of years. And a lot of people had written him off or, or said he, that he wouldn't be able to compete with the top stars in the game. The top four competing for the trophy will be Nathan Aspinall, Gary Anderson, the two-time world champ, the reigning world champion Peter Wright, and Glenn Durrant himself. So no place for Michael Van Gerwen. And it will be very strange not to see him at finals night next month in the O2. Personally, I've loved seeing that this rise of Durant and the fall of Van Gogh, and just because he's been so dominant for quite a while. As more of an avid dance fan than me, Toby, what have you actually made of it yourself? Well, worth saying that Van Gogh has been at the top of the sport for, I think it's seven years he's been world number one now. And you think about any other sport, for somebody to be world number one for seven years is pretty incredible stuff. And actually, the darts world probably doesn't appreciate the longevity of Van Gogh's time at the top quite as much as another sport would, for the simple reason that Phil Taylor absolutely dominated the sport for the best part of two decades. So Van Gogh's achievements still, unfortunately for him, pale in comparison to 
Phil Taylor, but he's still, I think most people would say he's the second best player ever in darts, Van Gogh. so this is quite a shock. He changed his darts at the start of the year after a disappointing loss to Peter Wright in the World Championship final. And I don't know if that's had something to do with it because he's changed the manufacturer of his darts as well. A lot of players are associated with a particular manufacturer and, he, and Van Gogh changed his. It was noticeable that on his final couple of appearances in the Premier League, whenever the wheels had just completely come off his campaign, he changed his darts again to a different type. So clearly wasn't happy with the setup that he was using. And he just seems to have lost a lot of confidence as well. I think he's lost to some players. He's lost his fear factor. There was always a sense, I think, for a lot of players, especially in the Premier League, that when you played MVG, you were going to lose. And a lot of players were beaten before they'd even thrown a dart because of that. But I think that fear factor has gone now people see that he is beatable and sort of lesser players if you will or lower ranked players are beating him so it remains to be seen but he's definitely in a rut and I think he's really got to show his quality now and see whether he can get back up again. Who's your pick for that uh, finals night? Well very very hard to say because all four of them have been in fantastic form and I wouldn't say any of them don't deserve to win it. For me it's between Peter Wright, who's just been throwing brilliantly ever since he won the world title, I think a weight has been lifted off his shoulders when he won that world title. And he's just throwing with so much freedom. He's doubling his fantastic. Just doesn't look scared of anyone and looks really at home with his game. So I would not be at all surprised if he won it. And Nathan Aspinall, I've talked many times before on this <laughs> podcast fame. how much of a fan I am of him. And as an up-and-coming player, it'd be fantastic to see Nathan win it. But he's got a tough draw because in the semi-final, he plays Glenn Durham. I don't think anyone would begrudge Glenn an opportunity to win it either. And Gary Anderson has won the Premier League before, so he's the only player, I think, in this four who has won it before, many years ago now. So it'd be nice to see him return to sort of an old glory as well. So you could make a case for all of them, but for me, it's Wright or Aspinall. Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm probably going to stick with Darren. I've loved seeing this switch up to the PDC, and I want to see him just triumph. It gives a bit of inspiration to other players. Scott Mitchell, our, our interviewee, and he talked to, didn't he, in his interview about recommending a mind coach to Glenn, and yeah. perhaps that's worked wonders. <laughs> On the subject of Glenn moving from the BDO to the PDC, now, I can't remember the exact player that said it now, but uh, he's come out and claimed that the BDO is dead after they... Martin Adams. I knew it was someone big. I wanted to see what your thoughts on that were. Yeah, it's really sad what's happened to the BDO, actually, because this has been largely avoidable and it's just been some financial strife that's been going on and, and internal arguments within who's running the BDO. And it's just been going on for over a year now with no sign of any sort of resolution. It's very sad because there's so many young players who come through the BDO before they get to the PDC, the Professional Darts Corporation. So I would say a significant number of the top players in the PDC originally started their careers in the BDO and then switched over. So without the BDO funneling that talent, I think the PDC will be worse off as well. So I think this is very sad. And obviously a lot of the darts that I grew up watching as a kid on TV was BDO darts as well. It was on terrestrial TV. BDO has always had a proud history of being on terrestrial TV. So it'd be bad for the BDO and bad for darts in general to have less darts on TV. I think it's a great shame. I mean, I'd like to echo everything you said there, particularly about it being on TV. That was the dart star. I grew up as a kid watching and if that wasn't now, I probably wouldn't have any interest in darts whatsoever now. 
I'll update <laughs> a little bit on the snooker now. Uh, I won't go into too much details. It was a little while ago, but it's, I'm all going to discuss it just for the fact that we have the segment of Ronnie Sullivan's controversial comments. He, of course, won the World Championship bit, beating Curran Wilson in the final, which was pretty lacklustre final in the end. It was an easy whitewash for O'Sullivan, beating him 18-8. And Curran Wilson, I think, just bottled under the pressure, really lacked confidence. Even at one stage, left the table early because he thought we were done for that session. But as I say, Ronnie O'Sullivan's comments that he's come out with this week or that week, he was moaning about his cue action and claimed it was like trying to play the US Open with a free iron. Just one thing on the Crucible, though, obviously where snooker is played. With the whole corona situation, there's speculation at local venues and theatres might be sold. Barry Hearns actually come out and said he would be happy to buy the Crucible should it go under. How much should we fear for like local venues like this? Not necessarily just a snooker, but how much should we fear for their future? It's worrying. I mean, these they've been left dormant for however many months now. So it's not cheap to run a place like that anyway. So all those outgoings and nothing coming in, it's, it is scary. And I think if you don't get fans inside places sooner rather than later, or at least heavy investment from like, I don't know, benefactors or even the government sort of setting up a pot to keep these places ticking over, then yeah, I think there's a real worry that we're just going to have a lot of empty venues that can't afford to host any events. Yeah, I think we're in a very delicate place at the moment. And obviously the, the furlough scheme is still going on. So when that sort of stabiliser is removed from a lot of companies, I think some could struggle and some venues could struggle even more. Obviously the, the club industry, I think, is particularly under pressure i think it's nearly a quarter of a million jobs that are at risk there because obviously they can't still get people into clubs at all so so I, I think it's probably the same with a lot of these venues and i do fear for it and i'm sure that sport itself will survive but whether some of these iconic venues will or not remains to be seen yeah and further cost cutting in part due to corona but in part due to uh being not deemed good value for money is the bbc decided not to renew their license with the athletics which was interestingly found that was worth their contract was worth three million a year how do you feel on their situation that athletics won't be on the bbc anymore it seems a bit bit weird it's been rumoured for some time, this one, hasn't it? I think that there were discussions about whether they were going to sign this new contract, and obviously it hasn't. Do you know, Sam, who they've, who the Athletics is going to be with? Or has that not been announced yet? No, they essentially held crisis talks with the BBC because the BBC have ditched them and they still want to be with the BBC. I think that's a huge shame, though, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's a whole generation of potential athletes who could miss out on sports that they could be great at just because they're not able to watch it and think oh I might have a go at that. I think the BBC does have to make cutbacks doesn't it in in some areas but it does seem a a little bit harsh to cull a whole sport just for that and that being said there are obviously some disparities in terms of sports that the BBC covers. There's not a lot of rugby on the BBC and virtually no cricket on the BBC either but they've got huge numbers of hours of sports like tennis and athletic and snooker obviously as well so I appreciate that sometimes these things can be divvied up between different broadcasts but maybe there needs to be a bit more equality in some of some of the sports the uh, BBC covers. Do you think it has anything to do with the fact that the superstars of yesterday the 2012 Olympics a lot of the British athletes there and obviously you were saying Bolt and stuff like that that we don't really have too many iconic 
athletes in uh, athletics at the moment. We've got Dina Asher-Smith and there's a couple of female athletes. But other than that, there's not a lot of talent that's household names, is there? I think that's a fair point. I think obviously with the Olympics being in London, it was sort of we were almost getting drip-fed these athletes and all the money that went into their training and stuff that they were bound to win. And I think the whole sort of campaign was to get them recognisable for the for the Olympics so people knew who they were cheering on and then them winning obviously was fantastic and yeah the honeymoon period of that is sort of over now and you are right I don't think many people would be able to name the GB athletes right now and that is probably a reason why they thought oh well if there's not the names no one's going to really tune in. Yeah I agree and I think it does come down to that lack of association where sometimes the the Brits don't feel that they're they know, as, as Paul says, who they're actually cheering on. But perhaps that's something that the BBC could have done differently about their coverage and, and perhaps given more prominence to those names. Or maybe that's just a fact of life that because it's not one of our top sports, athletics, people aren't going to pay as much interest in it except when there's a big Olympics on and a home Olympics at that. Yeah, and where the contract has been dropped for the athletics, there's been a big contract in NFL as that's moving to Sky now on a five-year deal. But we're going to touch on a bit of news to do with a player's contract here, Toby. You pulled this one up in the week. It was only a couple of weeks ago we announced that record contract for um, Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes. Now there's another huge deal in the NFL. You're going to have to tell me what his name is, Sam, because I haven't got it to hand. But I know it's a $140 million deal, I think, a year. The second biggest in NFL history. I think his name, I'm trying to find his first name. I know his surname was uh, Watson. I think it's Deshaun Watson. Just to say on the NFL while you look that up. Yeah, it's moved to Sky, hasn't it? Or, or it was always on Sky, but they've given it its own channel now. And it's, they've really gone to town with the coverage. But also, live games are returning to terrestrial TV as well, which is good news for all British viewers. And Channel 5 are going to be airing Monday night football every Monday from uh, 12 midnight for people to watch. And they've got a new highlight show as well on Channel 5 for people to catch up on. So that's good to see a more terrestrial sport and sport returning to having a, a shot window on terrestrial TV again. And you'd have to say there's arguably going to be more people watching that on Channel 5 than there might be on, on the Sky showing because they'll pick up a lot of the casual audience. Yeah, I mean, I've just got it. It is Deshaun Watson of the Houston Texans. Now, last time we compared... The contract to Freddo's. I've got that number again. Um, it's 800 million Freddo's his contract works out as 160 million uh, a year. With the NFL deals, do you reckon you're going to, either of you will be tuning in to watch more NFL? Mm, I'd watch a highlight package, I think, but actually sitting down and watching a game of NFL is, is a big commitment. I mean, I don't know how long the average game is, but seems to be quite stop-start whenever I've watched that like, Super Bowl and stuff. So I'd definitely watch a highlights show because it is an entertaining sport. It just takes too long, really, to watch, I think. Yeah, I think I'm the same. I think because we're sports journalists and we pay more attention to how these things are presented and produced and covered and that sort of thing, I find some of the American and British, actually, coverage of the NFL is actually quite poor. And it can be sort of frustrating how they don't make it very exciting, some, some of the US channels. The exception to that is, I think, NBC do Sunday night football. And they really go to town with the graphics and the commentators and everything. And they've got a, a sort of a guy who's been doing it for many, many years, Al Michaels, who does the commentary they really make it into an occasion so i might watch some of it and certainly probably watch the super bowl but 
I'm not sure if I'll be paying it too close attention. No, I won't be watching too much of it live. I agree with Paul, maybe some highlights, but to watch the NFL games, they seem, when you, before you get into the idea of NFL, you think it's going to be quite fast-paced, quite exciting, but games are so slow and long, yeah. and I think that's just something that's typical of American sports. Like, baseball's so much worse. There's no wonder they really aren't that popular outside the States. Well, they, they basically swap their whole team around whenever they change possession. I mean, can you imagine that in foot, like our football? If if you had an offensive yeah. team and a defensive team, it just yeah, it makes the whole thing so long. There's clearly an audience and an appetite for it in the UK, I think, because they do sell out big mm. stadiums when the American teams come over here and it does get good viewing figures as well, or or Sky wouldn't have given it its own channel. But I think it is still a niche audience and I'm yeah. not sure it's still got that wider appeal in this country. Anyway, I think we'll move into our penultimate little news piece here. It's the Tour de France has finally started over the last week or so. Chris Froome and Geraint Thomas both pulled out of their team in the Austin State, formerly of Team Sky. They focused on last year's winner, Egan Burrell, and the 2019 Italian Tour, Richard Carapez, to lead their side. Although, interestingly, when I was looking up, there is a, another Englishman that's actually doing pretty well, and Adam Yates, he held the yellow jersey for four days before losing it today, but he has been 62 seconds off the leader. Now, Toby, you hadn't even heard that Froome and Thomas were out with the Tour de France. You thought it had been a bit bigger news than it was. Yeah, I agree. I haven't, I've heard barely anything about the Tour de France at all, to be honest. It really doesn't seem to have broken into the headlines. I mean, it has been quite a busy week or a busy um, couple of weeks in the sports media, to be fair. So perhaps that's why it just cycling just doesn't have the broader appeal to, to break into the top headlines. But no, I really hadn't heard much about it at all. Yeah, Paul, the same for you, I guess. You, I'm going to shock you here, but I can't even ride a bike. So Really? Yeah, that's, uh, that's my contribution to that. <laughs> it's not the most entertaining sport to watch either, I have to be honest. I do find it long and dull. I love a crash. Uh, That's about it. Watch yeah, but you can, crash. exactly. You can watch a clip. It's, it's a little bit. I mean, F1 is a bit better, but it's a little bit in a way like some of the more boring F1 races. Where and also there's so many different teams and cyclists or whatever. You barely know who anyone is. I think. No, no, they're constantly chopping and changing, aren't they? Like with this team Ineos, you think they'd have one kind of big star that they'd keep, but it's never the case. And we'll move into the first segment. The Sporting question. Each week I ask a multiple choice sporting question. Sam versus the guest. Uh, We've played four (laughs) rounds of this so far and the current score is Sam nil, guest nil. So no one has actually ever managed to get one of these right so far. Oh, so, yeah. oh that, that's not too much pressure then. Yeah, there's, I can no, take pre- that. there's no pressure at all. In fact, you, you know, you could go down in history, Paul, as the first person <laughs> to get one right. And actually, it's your turn to go first this week. Oh, uh, okay. So this week's sporting question is, which of these TV presenters is not a former professional sports person? A, Bradley Walsh. B, Gabby Logan. C, Julian Warren. Those are your three options. I think I know. So, Gabby Logan was a gymnast. I'm pretty sure about that. And I do believe Bradley Walsh played football for Brentford. So, I'm going to go for Julian Warren. C, was not. You're going for Julian Warren. What do you think, Sam? Well, I can't even figure who Julian Warren is. So, that doesn't help. Gabby Logan, (laughs) I know, played sport. So, I'm just going to say Bradley Walsh. You're going Bradley Walsh? I can tell you. But Paul is right. It is Julian Warren. Well done, Paul, on that Thank one. Thank you. 
Bradley Walsh, as Paul rightly says, used to be a footballer, and Gabby Logan was a gymnast. So fantastic knowledge there. And finally, one of my questions has been wow. cracked. I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm just glad that once someone's got one right, this really could be <laughs> nil-nil forever, even if I have lost that. Just on that point, Sam, uh, Julian Warren is the host of Gillette Soccer Special on Sky Sports. When Jeff Sterling is away, he's oh. the guy who, who hosts it. See, I don't watch any of that. I occasionally watch Final Score. Last segment now. Actually, we have, it's not our last segment this week, so we've got the, the new one. A niche sport from around the world. But this one's called Bossable. This is a lot easier to explain than the other one that we had last week that I couldn't even, or last time, I couldn't even pronounce. This is essentially volleyball on an inflatable court with trampolines, except you can also kick it. And it's got this weird link with bossa music, which is like Brazilian samba music. So it seems like a proper sport I'd love to try. Scoring system works, first to 21. One point uh, if you hit the opponent's area over the net with a volley. Uh, Three if you hit their trampoline. And then with the football volley, it would be three points and five points. Played a kind of similar sport like this before, but I can't remember what it was called on a trampoline with like football and volleyball, but it is so tiring. Um, and where, where's this normally played? Uh, well, it originates from Spain, but I think it was a couple of guys from Holland kind of made it popular, and it's become quite big from Brazil with the, the bossa music, because bossa means flair in uh, Portuguese. Sounds quite fun to me. I'd quite like to have a go at that one. I was going to say, are you, you going to eventually get around to trying all these sports? <laughs> I don't think That'd we can make... try some of them. <laughs> that would make some quite good... Uh... Video content, I imagine. Well, the um, the knob throwing that was a couple of weeks ago in in, in that's in Bournemouth, isn't it? So well, we Dorchester, always, yeah, Dorchester rather. So we could always go down and, and partake in a bit of <laughs> Next that. Next year, I, think yeah. I know there's um, I know there's Dorset knob biscuits as well. So yeah, that's what they that's what they throw. Oh, there you go. Yeah, you <laughs> I, go. I think you're right. I think we do have to go down and uh, do some knob throwing. <laughs> Yeah, final and new segment here now. I might be putting Paul on the spot a bit. It's our sporting moment of the week. For me, I'm going to go with Lucas Shaw's hat-trick in the Carabao Cup. He scored a header, left foot, right foot, and he scored a very good goal that was reminiscent of Cal robson Carnus in the Euros for Wales. Toby, what have you which, chosen? I which team did he score for? Uh, that's for Reading. That's for Reading. And that was 3-1 against Colchester, am I right? Yeah, it was yeah. indeed good result given all the problems that have been going on there which i think we'd have to do a whole new podcast to go into oh, don't those. even get me started <laughs> on the met what's going on at reading my sporting moment of the week is uh, samo farah enjoying his greatest hour ever on the track as he set a new world record the double olympic champion broke the 13 year old one hour world record this is how long can you run in an hour and he ran 21 kilometers in the brussels diamond league meeting and they say it will go down as one of his best achievements in the sport but mo farah 37 now and still setting records so he's my sportsman of the week and that's my sporting moment of the week yeah that's incredible i didn't even pick up on that i could probably didn't have realize. a guess what paul's is gonna be well <laughs> yeah I'd, i was trying to think of something more interesting but i think i'll probably go for the mighty plymouth argyle defeating QPR 3-2 
after going 1-0 down inside the first minute, I think. And it's a good sign of things to come for this season. If not for Mo, then I would have gone for my own team, Northampton's (laughs) 3-0 defeat of Cardiff Heroics. But uh, yeah, Mo edged it out for me this week. (laughs) No, I'm glad you found something different because I I was struggling. I wanted to pick something different, but I couldn't couldn't really think of anything this week that stood out too much. Now, on the topic of football, and alluded to earlier that Paul himself is a podcast host. And it's a pretty uh, cool idea they've got there with the Matchmakers podcast. Yeah, so it's, it's, not, a, it's not a dating podcast, which some, <laughs> some, some people might have actually thought it was. But no, it's um, basically each show we get a guest on, someone to do with the world of football. So we had an author, Dominic Stevenson, come on on our very first show. Basically, the premise is that they choose their favourite stadium, favourite manager, favourite formation and their favourite players of all time to create their dream match and they get drawn against one of history's greatest sides at the end. They have to answer some general knowledge questions about that side to see if they're victorious. It's a great idea I think, yeah, and I have listened to the first one and thoroughly enjoyed it as well so I'm hoping that there's Thank more Thank you very much. Definitely one to check out. Yeah, I'll include a link to that in the description. Other than that, thanks Toby as always for joining us and to you Paul. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed it. Pleasure. And uh, for those listening, we'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Please follow us on any streaming services you use to listen to podcasts and follow us on social media. Twitter is at Ultimate Sport P and Instagram is The Ultimate Sports Podcast so you don't miss any future sports news or guest episodes. And we'll see you next time.